this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another episode of the hindu's in focus podcast today we have a special crossover episode featuring the hindu's data point podcast which takes the biggest data driven stories and puts it into context so you understand what these numbers mean for you In this bonus episode from the Data Point podcast, we have our host Sonika Loganathan from the Hindu's data team in conversation with Anjali Bharatwaj and Saurav Das on how the RTI process has become more restrictive and less pro people. We hope you like this episode. You can subscribe to the Data Point by the Hindu from the links in the show notes. You are listening to the Data Point podcast, brought to you by the Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. Today, we're discussing the Right to Information Act. The RTI Act was passed in 2005 and it gives citizens access to the records of central and state governments. This act gives people the power to question the government, making it a key part of maintaining a healthy democracy. Any citizen can file an RTI and state and central information commissions then discern whether the information can and should be shared with the public. The Public Information Officer or PIO is obligated to reply to RTIs within 30 days of receiving the application after which you can file an appeal if the answer is unsatisfactory. But the act isn't as foolproof as it seems. When it works, it's a powerful tool that can uncover major issues in the areas that fall under government. But with issues like vacancies in information commissions, a reluctance to be transparent, and delays with appeals and complaints the act's power seems to be getting diluted i'll be speaking with rti activist anjali bharadwaj and investigative journalist and transparency activist saurav das about these issues in a little bit but first i want to bring in my colleague vignesh radhakrishnan vignesh you've filed countless rtis for our data points so tell me what kind of information have you gotten from rtis and How significant is it for you that this resource is available? Yes, there are several instances when I filed RTIs and it worked and there are some other instances where I filed and it has failed. Let me start with the instances where it worked for me. So, this was when COVID-19 vaccine started to roll out in India and about 2 to 3 months 4 months down the line there was a stark difference between the number of vaccines administered in Tamil Nadu Maharashtra Andhra Pradesh Telangana and uh, states like Gujarat Himachal Pradesh the number of vaccines administered in Gujarat Himachal Pradesh and in general in the north and the west were really high and the south was lagging behind especially Tamil Nadu so there were statements uh, from the center the central government which said that Tamil Nadu is lagging behind especially because there is uh, hesitancy in the state uh, and especially the older folks uh, do not want to uh, you know get injected uh, the vaccines which was a weird thing for me because as somebody from the state i have observed uh, that we have successfully administered 
all types of vaccine in the past like polio and stuffs and we are leading the nation um, in those indicators so why we are different when it comes to covid-19 was the question which i wanted to answer so one number which the government was releasing every day was how much of vaccine was supplied to each state this the press information bureau uh, was giving for the first 10 to 12 days of the supply after the supply started however that uh, figure stopped uh, they stopped publishing that figure and the only figure they released then after was how much was administered because i know that they were giving this figure i know they were collecting it so i asked the uh, ministry i think the home ministry uh, or the health ministry i filed two two to three of them mm-hmm. asking how much of uh, vaccines was supplied uh, to these states and i used to do it once in every 5 days because i wanted the current position an rta takes about 30 days for the reply to come right so by the time uh, a reply comes it will be stale so i kept uh, you know uh, filing rtas every 2 days once 3 days once so that by the time the replies come i'll be able to compile them and make a story mm-hmm. so that led to a very interesting story mm-hmm. which said that it was not hesitancy but it was the supply issues which was holding tamil nadu behind because the well, i was able to say with numbers that if the center supplied 1 lakh vaccines to tamil nadu on thursday by friday evening uh, tamil nadu would have administered 99% of it so this was the case across india but because the supply was less in south the administration was less not the not because hesitancy was there so we were able to prove this mm-hmm. the second thing that we were able to prove was at the hindu we did a series of stories uh, on excess deaths during covid for that we had to uh, get the data of the number of deaths registered in the civil registration system of each state month wise for 2019 2020 2021 2018 2 so that we can compare the number of deaths registered with the number of uh, covid-19 deaths actually released by the government and then the difference between the two i mean there will be a bump in the number of uh, deaths during the covid uh, years pandemic years so how much of them has the government accounted for right so the rest will be excess deaths uh, which is unaccounted for right in order to get this data the other states were somewhat easy to get but delhi is a very unique case where there are five urban local bodies so we have to file uh, seeking for this data with each urban local body and each has a different website and a format the money they charge differs everything differs i was able to file the same questions with each of these five bodies and i was able to get a reply and using this we calculated that excess debts in delhi was two times the reported covid-19 figures so these are the two instances in which it worked okay and when did it not work the two instances in which it didn't work were after neat the medical entrance examination was introduced in tamil nadu this was in 2016 17 so a year after that i asked the uh, the the ministry the health ministry i filed with the neat edu- higher education department also two to three rtis asking them for the following details which is how many number of uh, students from the state board syllabus 
applied for neat and how many of them cleared neat and how many of them went on to become doctors from tamil nadu i asked the same information to be supplied for number of students from cbse number of students from other uh, boards basically they had to give me a number uh, 2 to 3 numbers number of students who applied number of students who passed number of students who went on to become doctors across these types of boards in tamil nadu mm-hmm. which first they said such information was not there we do not collect such information so then i went for an appeal so after 30 days if the information you receive either you have not received any reply or the reply which you received was not good or you are not satisfied you can appeal so i appealed during the appeal i attached two three documents which shows that while submitting a neat application a student submits an application they ask you specifically which board you are from are you from state board which uh, domicile you are from which state you are from so it is not something which they have to prepare after i file an rti and it is an online application so they it's just it would have all been in their database all they have to do is to do a small pivot table and give me this data mm-hmm. right so i attached this proof and said that if you are claiming that you do not collect this information or do not have this information but look here it is in your application form when i said that the reply was the for the appeal was that you are asking for an information which is fiduciary and information available to a person in a fiduciary relationship is actually one of the exemptions to the RTI under section 8 their argument was when the student wrote the exam and uh, we gave them the score the relationship between the student and the body which is the need the exam conducting body is a fiduciary relationship the student has entrusted that data with us if we leak that data then it is uh, it will be against it will be breaking that relationship so this was one of the either they said to reject my appeal which was actually very weird because i am not asking them for individual students they know this and giving individual students is also is very tough to do because it will go there will be some thousands and thousands of pages of excel all they have to do is give me the number of students right but they interpreted it in that way uh, very smartly so that they need not give me this information because it was a controversial issue at that time and you also filed an rti pretty recently regarding um some questions about the pmla so what happened with that so there was a recent supreme court judgment on the pmla uh, which is the uh, money laundering act where the supreme court said i will i mean there was an appeal asking the act to be stopped which the supreme court said no they will not do so and one of the arguments that the supreme court uh, said was it was a self containing act mm-hmm. which means if an officer errs like for example we if there is a there is a term in pmla which is called a vexatious search a vexatious search is something like if some officer goes to a politician's house or somebody's house to make a search and it turns out that he did so without proper intimation yeah without like a legitimate reason yeah if the reasonings were not there then the officer can be held accountable an appellate body will pull up that officer and uh, that it is punishable offense it it uh, amounts to at least i think even imprisonment mm-hmm. 
so all and there is a particular clause uh, that the pmla uh, act has uh, to act on these officers so i i i uh, submitted the nati application to ed mm-hmm. which is actually a little bit weird because uh, agencies like ed cbi are not under the purview of the rta but that is a different case so for example if some if i am being investigated and i ask the ed or cbi okay so how is my investigation going or who are the officers involved in the investigation something like that which will unnecessarily stop the investigation or obstruct the investigation in some way so they will not reveal this so this is why it has been given a leeway still there have been judgments before by the central information commission that if the question involves a human rights angle uh, then you have to give that answer there is no other go now in this information i am seeking is not uh, to do with any active investigation i mentioned that in the rti i said mm-hmm. i am asking this uh, for the completed investigations uh, which you have closed the files and of which has there been any instances of any officer who has been imp- uh, punished under this clause that you have vexatious clause that you have uh for which their blunt reply was we do not come under the purview of the rti so they and uh, so but i am not asking any uh, details about the investigation i am not asking any particular details about a particular investigation so it's not really about them not having this information or you know this being under the list of exemptions to the rti act it's more that they maybe don't want to share this information right whenever they do not want to give that information they interpret the question in a different way when i went for an appeal then to the, uh, the that officer also uh, denied uh, also i did not file the rta application to the ed in the first case i actually filed the rta application to the appellate body which enforces this uh, clause mm-hmm. uh, on the ed which is an appellate body for that but somehow the rta reply came from ed itself that itself was weird for me okay so since you got a response that you weren't satisfied with the next step would be to go and file an appeal file a second appeal so what stopped you from doing that so i did file the first appeal i did not get information i was this appeal did not change at in any way filing and second appeal is first of all i do not know the process even now it's mm-hmm. something i have not gone into in detail also changes for example we have to write to the central information commission is what i believe so the, it has to be done in a certain way where we have to write a letter to the central information commission attaching the previous replies and then arguing our case now one of the things which i heard was they will call you to delhi and uh, you have to it will be like a court room or something and then you have to go and make your case Mm-hmm. so which was uh, pretty intimidating for me and uh, but then i also later learned that we can they do uh, do this over uh, video conference but there's a lack of clarity when it comes to figuring out exactly what how to go about the next steps in the process yes yes i would say so that that is why that is what is holding me back Now both Anjali Bhardwaj and Saurav Das have filed numerous RTIs over the years and know the act in and out. So I want to bring them in and ask them a little bit about the issues that the act is facing today. 
So Anjali and Saurav, thank you so much for joining me today. Both of you are RTI experts. And, you know, the the whole point of the act is to make it easier for people to question government and to, more importantly, question the government and get satisfactory answers so that we know exactly what's going on. But increasingly, we're seeing the rise of people like yourselves, RTI experts, and, you know, we've come to understand that there's a certain way that you go about phrasing the questions and addressing the officers and these kinds of small details in terms of how a question is presented can make a huge difference in the kind of answer that you receive. So I wonder if this is something that's common knowledge. Do people know that there's a way to go about doing this? And, you know, is this sort of lack of knowledge about the art of how to file an RTI causing, you know, some kind of a divide between people like yourselves and then just regular people who want to genuinely find out information. So um, I think what is very um, remarkable about the Indian Right to Information Act, and this comes from the fact that the law came as a result of a very strong people's movement, a grassroots movement where, uh, where people from all walks of life, including people who are not lettered, who came together to say that there is need for a legislation to ensure that they are empowered to seek information from the government. The law, the way it has been drafted, basically ensures that there is no very set format in which an RTI application has to be filed. So uh, the manner in which an RTI application has to be filed is not defined in the law. All that it requires is for the person to give uh, their name and uh, their address where they want the information to be sent. And they want they have to list out the questions. So in that sense, it's a fairly straightforward, simple process. It is a fact, uh, Sonika, that uh, you know the kind of information that one gets, the quality of information one receives, depends on how the questions are drafted and framed. And therefore, uh, very often we find that people who are asking for information uh, sort of need to work on the questions that they are filing. But let me also say that our research has shown that a very large percentage of RTI applications are filed by the poorest and the most marginalized. And they're usually asking for information which is very basic in nature, which relates to their very basic rights and entitlements. So somebody is asking for their ration uh, card, whether the ration, ration card has been made or not. It's a fairly simple question, and they're able to ask that question without too much training. So asking, I filed an uh, I filed an application, um, you know, has it been processed? And uh, at what stage is it is something that people are able to usually draft without too much problem. Again, very often people file a grievance, and they say, I filed a complaint, what action has been taken on it? This does not require too much training. But when one asks for complex information, which deals with, let's say, corruption, large scams, or, uh, you know, uh, cases of violations of the law or human rights, that is when one needs to really frame the questions in a very, very detailed form. And uh, I think where you mentioned the expertise coming in helps. Uh, But I think the experience across the country 
is that when we say anywhere around 60 lakh RTI applications are filed every year, a majority of those are by those people who are living at the margins, are not uh, don't have the benefit of a formal education and are still filing those applications and accessing information. I do believe the beauty of this act is uh, its simplicity and it's so easy to memorize for the people as well. It, no complex language at all. And uh, what relates to people are, are very few sections. So uh, the act is very beautiful in theory, but um, I do believe that, you know, the rules that are framed under uh, the RTI Act, uh, like suppose, for example, in the high courts, if you are asking for information, they have particular forms uh, through which only you can seek information. Um, if you file an application in Odisha, uh, they have a particular format uh, for filing uh, the RTI. So I think uh, go, uh, there's a Central Information Commission order also which says that do not go too much into technicalities of how RTI is being filed. Uh, but, you know, these sort of RTI rules uh, creates uh, creates hindrances for people uh, to seek information. So not only that, um, we also see sometimes the PIOs rejecting RTIs because we use adjectives like why, how, etc. And the CIC has come down on it. But, you know, uh, I see year by year the quality of uh, information being provided by PIOs is going down and therefore they use these sort of excuses to deny information also um, so this is something that i have noticed in the past uh, few years and another hindrance that i do see is if you have to pay 10 rupees the fee for filing an rta application the courts sometimes have different uh, uh, methods of filing fixed methods of filing uh, the fees and some states have different overall i see um, Indian postal orders are accepted, but in some states, uh, it's not accepted. So again, um, a person from a very, uh, from a poor background may not be able to, you know, really do that much research and then file RTIs. So I think hence the RTI experts that are coming up now, I think it's great if they, you know, uh, people who want to file RTIs go up to them and ask uh, for some help that would really ensure that there's not much delay in getting the information. So uh, if I may just add to what Saurav said, because I think, uh, you know, the point that he made about uh, some states and public authorities like the courts having uh, rules, you know, competent authorities, having certain rules which are problematic, um, you know, there are places where uh, there is an upper limit to the number of words that are used. Now, that becomes a problem. Like, you know, there are some places, some states where, uh, you know, you can only file an RTI application within 150 words. Now, for people to be able to sort of, you know, con dense their questions sometimes, especially those who might not have uh, the benefit of a very formal education to do that and say that I will ask my question within 150 words becomes a disadvantage. So uh, like Saurav said, while the law is uh, very clear that, you know, it is meant for the last person, uh, the law, and therefore uh, there is no uh, format prescribed and there is no such word limit, etc. But through rules, in some places, uh, this has been done and which makes the task more difficult for a common person. 
So when it comes to the kinds of answers that you're getting, I mean, I'm going to give a bit of a simplistic example just so um, people understand. But, you know, if I file an RTI, for example, and I, you know, ask who the president is, I might get a response that says the president of what? So that sort of miscommunication, for lack of a better term, how does that, you know, manifest when it comes to RTIs that are asking questions about human rights violations or corruption or more serious matters like that? So when it comes to human rights violations, um, when suppose, for example, you ask for information from the Home Ministry's uh, Disaster Management Division, very cleverly, the PIOs these days, the public information officers these days use words like this division does not have the information. So now, that, therefore, they are putting in a way the liability on the applicant to find out which officer and which office will hold that information, which is not in consonance with the RTI Act because the liability is on the officer to find out who is holding the information and transfer the RTA application. So clever use of words uh, in the past few years, it has increased because you ask for any information related to larger public interest and you get these sort of clever responses from the PIOs. Ki, um, I don't have the information, so don't ask me. You find out. That is basically what they say. You know, the point that uh, the RTI application needs to be specific can't be overstated. You know, the fact is that if one is asking for information, it has to be a complete uh, description of what information is being sought. Otherwise, it, it is very difficult for the public information officer to respond. So like your question uh, that, you know, who is the president, uh, then yeah, the PIO might have to get back to say of, you know, are you asking of a certain chamber? Are you asking of the, uh, the president of India, etc. But um, I think uh, I, uh, what I'm also more concerned about is what Saurav uh, is speaking of, which is that, you know, uh, even after 17 years of the law, we have seen that the mindset hasn't necessarily changed with respect to transparency in many public authorities. Uh, so there is an increasingly, we are finding, uh, an attempt to, uh, to not give information using various kinds of excuses. Uh, some of them are exemptions which are listed under the law uh, or very often, uh, you know, under the RTI Act, uh, a PIO is supposed to give you information and the only way they can deny you information if it falls under Section 8 or 9 of the law. So Section 8 of the RTI Act lists out the exemptions from disclosure of information. So basically a list of the information that cannot be made publicly available. So that includes things like information that could threaten national security or endanger someone's safety. Section 9 of the Act states that if nothing from Section 8 applies, an information officer can still reject an RTI request if it would involve infringement of copyright subsisting in a person other than the state. So they're supposed to specifically refer to which section they are using to deny information. Without even referring to a section, we are seeing that in a large number of cases, uh, denials are, are there where, you know, people are just told this information can't be provided to you, which is, which is an illegal uh, denial. So like Saurav said, instead of 
transferring the RTI application to the correct public authority, which is what is supposed to be done under the law. At the stage of implementation, we are seeing that public authorities, uh, the PIOs try to just say, I am not holding this information or this doesn't fall within my public authority. And that's where the matter ends. So that is a uh, is certainly a problem that we are seeing. And just to just to add here, um, this is happening at the central level also, but in states like UP, the case is worse. I've uh, during uh, the UP elections, before UP elections, actually, I had filed almost 40, 50 RTIs seeking information relating to their budget uh, announcements and promises. Out of 40, 50 uh, RTIs, only one proper response was received. All the other RTA applications, the officer said that they do not hold the information in their division. And that was the end of the matter. Now, uh, an applicant uh, wouldn't know where else to file the RTI, if not, say, the agriculture department or uh, the home department. Um, so it, it is it is a very bad state in certain states. So I wonder when both of you sort of started to see things deteriorating. Was this the way that the act always functioned? Were there always was there always this sort of opposition to releasing information, or you know, was there a point in time where you'd started noticing a change in the kinds of responses that you were getting? Uh, when the law came in two thousand five, it really revolutionized the information uh, space in many senses because here uh, people were used to the uh, the public authorities were used to working behind a veil of secrecy and suddenly the introduction of the law meant that anyone could just ask any public authority for information and uh, you know there has been resistance from the very beginning so the first attempt in fact to amend the right to information law came within 11 months of it being introduced so it just shows that there was a resistance from the beginning. Uh, however, we have seen that, uh, you know, uh, uh, there is a huge deal of information that is available today to people that was not available before the law came into being. The fact that, you know, we have about 60 lakh RTI applicants every year shows that it's an effective piece of legislation. People are being able to access information in a very large number of cases. We are seeing, however, that you know, there is an increasing tendency to uh, not give information and to sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, to move away from, if one may say, from the uh, from openness. Uh, in fact, this has come at various levels. Uh, you know, uh, one of the union ministers, uh, the current union ministers, uh, very famously in, in uh, made a statement when uh, close to Bhopal, there was there were extrajudicial killings and people asked for information. He said that this terrible culture that has come into the country of asking for information and questioning the government and said that people should trust the government. Now, you know, this kind of sh uh, shows the mindset of the government where you know there is this uh, this tendency to say that asking for information is is not the right thing whereas in a democracy we know that governments are simply holding information on behalf of people and therefore people have a fundamental right to question and to ask for information so um, 
we are seeing that there are problems at various levels today. Uh, first is that uh, within the government, it's not something that is encouraged to ask for information. The second is that even maintaining data sets and information, uh, you know, the lack of putting information in the public domain is a, has become a big problem. So during COVID, for example, when government was asked how many people lost their lives due to lack of oxygen, uh, the number of migrant workers, on all of that, the government said we don't have any data. Uh, you know, on uh, the census, 2021 census hasn't happened. Uh, the government is now saying it's been indefinitely postponed. Now, that is a source of data. So if the government doesn't collect data or doesn't put it out, like the consumer expenditure survey hasn't been put out, you know, then people's right to information becomes really restricted because I can only ask for information that is collected or that is shared by the government. So if the government says that we don't just keep the data, then my right to information as a citizen is harmed. And finally, we are seeing, and this is not a new trend, but it certainly is very concerning that, you know, there are large scale denials of information. Um, there are different kinds of figures that have gone around on how much information is made available under the Right to Information Act to citizens. Uh, but our research and, uh, you know, uh, the, on the basis of information applications that we have filed and collated and compiled shows that, uh, you know, in about 50% of the cases, people don't get information that they are asking for. So that continues to be a problem. And like I said, in many cases, the correct kind of uh, rationale is not given for denials. So either there is denial without referring to the right clauses in the law, or there is a denial just sort of, you know, cursory denial without it being a speaking order. So you'll just be told under Section 81J, which deals with privacy, this information is denied. And just to be clear, Section 81J says information relating to personal information that has no relation to any public activity or interest and would cause unwarranted invasion of privacy of that person unless the information officer in charge decides that releasing the information would be in the public's best interest. And, and you know, 81J has been a very uh, induced in one of the largest percentage of cases to deny information. And without really saying how this would invade anyone's privacy, cause an unwarranted invasion of privacy, it's done. So these uh, kind of trends are very concerning as well. So to your last point, the CIC annual report says that the RTI rejection rate is down to 3.85% which is the lowest rejection percentage observed since the inception of the commission. So that number is different from the one you're referring to, right? The 50% that you are referring to. Those are people that are getting responses, but it's not satisfactory responses. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, Sonika, what we need to really look at is uh, what is being captured in that figure. Now, uh, what appears to be happening there is that this is a self-declaration by the public authority on how many cases they've totally rejected. Uh, but does it include deemed refusals, which basically means in cases where they don't reject, 
but they just don't give a response. And that's a very large number of cases. Uh, does it include cases where people are not really given uh, information on all the, uh, the points that they have sought? Does it include information which is either incorrect or partially provided? Uh, to our understanding, uh, you know, uh, a lot of this is not covered in the figure that is provided there. And which is why when we have done research, uh, the figure is of the cases, the percentage in which information is meaningfully provided is actually much lower. And that is what really matters to people. So when I file as a citizen some information request, it's because I'm interested in getting the relevant complete information that I'm seeking. And um, if the, in, the public authority just doesn't respond to my RTI application, that's a deemed refusal, even if they are not outright rejecting my request. And, and uh, it, it has the same effect on my right to information. Anjaliji has hit the bullseye um, and you see, uh, because I was wondering, because when you mentioned this question, I went through the CIC report and it showed a drop in rejection, which um, which is not really true because I have seen a rise in uh, rejections in the past few years. And therefore, I was wondering how this data is being captured because, you know, Again, going back to my example where the officer says that uh, he does not hold the information in his division. This is, again, a response. And at the end, they write saying the RTI is disposed of. But practically, that is a rejection. But that I don't think is recorded. And therefore, um, the data is vague and it is not clearly defined what they mean by rejection. And that is where, again, an eyewash, I believe. Yeah, and another point to bring up, I think, is just the fact that there have been major delays in getting responses or just, you know, a lack of responses because we see huge vacancies within the RTI offices with the commissioners. So, you know, based off our data, there's a rise in the number of pending RTI cases. There's also a rise in the number of fresh cases being filed. We saw a slight dip in that during the pandemic years, but overall, more RTIs and more vacancies. So I'm understanding this is a bit of a demand and supply issue. How does this lack of information commissioners worsen the problems that we're seeing? And how is it impacting the law? Right. So uh, I think there are two things here. One is that each public authority has to have public information officers to, to receive people's applications and to respond to them within a given time frame. And they're also supposed to have assistant public information officers uh, at a decentralized level. So people don't have to travel far to file their RTI applications and receive responses. Uh, the problem really is that under the framework of the RTI law, if I don't get my information, then where do I go as a citizen? And there is a first appeal, which usually does not work because it's an internal appeal. It goes within the department. And therefore, as a citizen, my recourse is to the second appeal or a complaint which lies with an information commission. Now, there are uh, information commissions that have been set up at the center, which is the Central Information Commission, and there are state-level information commissions. So we have state information commissions in every state of the country. 
The problem is that governments have realized that if they don't give information, which they don't want to provide to people because it might be inconvenient for them to give that information, it might show uh, human rights violations, it might show corruption, uh, it's, so it's inconvenient for them to share, they can always deny the information. But if there are independent and adequately staffed information commissions, then the commissions have the powers to direct governments to provide information. And therefore, the, the information commission has a very central and important role to play in the RTI framework. And governments have recognized that by making these information commissions less effective, they can actually control information flow. And we are seeing that they are doing this by two means. The first is that governments across the country are not appointing information commissions, adequate number of information commissions in the uh, information commissioners in the information commissions. So if you look at the Central Information Commission, for example, uh, it's a record that since 2014, when the current government came to power, not a single Central Information Commissioner has been appointed unless people have agitated the matter in the courts. So which means that these are uh, routine vacancies where the government knows when a commissioner is going to retire, but no, uh, you know, nobody is appointed unless people take the matter up to court, which means that there are a large number of vacancies and the number of appeals and complaints in the commissions keep keep rising the pending the pendency the backlog keeps increasing because there is nobody to hear those cases and dispose them off which means in turn that people have to keep waiting for their cases to be heard and we know that information delayed is information denied so you know if there is an old woman who's waiting for information about her old age pension and is not provided it and she goes to the commission where she has to wait for five years you know, very often uh, she's likely to not make it uh, by the time the hearing comes up and that information becomes absolutely useless for her. So we are seeing that this is one very critical way by which commissions are being made either defunct or weakened by governments. So our report cards, which we do of information commissions, have shown that currently also, for example, in the state of Jharkhand, not a single information commissioner has been appointed and the commission is lying completely defunct. There is no information commissioner in the state, which means that so many cases which deal with tribe, tribal issues, uh, mining, so many important issues, issues in the state, uh, if people don't get information, they really have no recourse to an appeal or a complaint. So that is a big problem. The other is that the autonomy of the information commissions are, is being undermined. So in 2019, the government brought in an amendment to the RTI Act by which the salaries and tenures of information commissioners are now going to be decided by the central government. 
which means that uh, information commissioners will know that if they pass orders which are inconvenient to the central government, then their post-retirement benefits, their pensions could be adversely impacted. Now, this really strikes at the heart of independence of commissioners in the commissions. And that's a very big problem as well. Sarav, can you respond to this, but also just give me an example of how your own work has been impacted by this? I, I, the, the commissions, one is, of course, the vacancy. But the second thing is also the kind of uh, persons being appointed to the commission. I cannot say there is one independent uh, information commissioner at the central level right now, because you go across all of their orders um, there is a fixed template for rejecting information that a citizen asks for. So there are they readily have uh, Supreme Court judgments or Delhi High Court judgments which uh, are for refusal of information. So instead of using judgments that are more pro-people and pro-transparency, the current Central Information Commission has orders that are really anti-RTI and perhaps have been also protested against in the past, uh, readily available with them to deny information, especially in matters of larger public interest. You wouldn't have heard in the past few years, um, in, the, in the past three, four years, I believe, any uh, particular order coming from the Central Information Commission on matter of larger public interest, be it the Alok Verma uh, CBI case where uh, Anjali Ji was the petitioner, or be it the UAPA Amendment Act, how the law was really made and the file relating to it, or be it during the pandemic where any order, even if passed, was not complied with and the government was given a free hand. So I think people of integrity are missing at the commission level. Uh, and this is worse again in the States. Uh, if you look at West Bengal, I've, uh, whenever I speak to you know activists there, they tell me that the commission, even though they have commissioners there, um, they work for minimal number of hours, one hour, two hours a day or three hours a day. And that really, again, takes a hit on the disposal of cases. So again, in Jharkhand, no information commissioners at all. Uh, so I think the, there's not a lack of supply, but there's a lack of will from the political side. And also um, at the state level, especially, I do not know if uh, there are, you know, a, a lot of pressure groups being formed uh, in order to pressurize the government to really act um, and appoint commissioners of integrity. And number two, of course, uh, while appointing commissioners also, we need to really ensure that there is transparency in the process. Uh, the Supreme Court had passed a judgment in Anjali Ji's case itself, where they had... Um, you know, asked the government to publish the written criteria under which it selects um, people for appointment as information commissioners. But I am not sure if that has been complied with. And there's a petition pending in the Supreme Court uh, also. So uh, we really need to ensure that people who are being appointed are people of some integrity. Else, um, else the... I, I, I believe the uh, vacancy could lie as it is because pe I don't know if people are being benefited by the commissioners that are being appointed. I think it's a waste of 
um, public exchequer. So can I add a couple of things to what uh, sort of has said? Um, I think I think uh, you know uh, there is a, a, a two or three uh, issues which are afflicting this entire uh, scenario. Uh, the first, of course, is like I said, uh, the lack of adequate number of commissioners being appointed. In fact, sort of talked about uh, West Bengal, and I was in Calcutta uh, just last week, and I spoke to the commissioners there. The commission has not been hearing a single case since July. And the reason they say is that there is no chief information commissioner has been appointed. And uh, the uh, the uh, West Bengal High Court, the uh, Calcutta High Court has basically said that unless there is a chief, you cannot hear cases. They will not be legally valid, the, the pronouncements of the commission. So we are having a situation where, uh, you know, uh, w- Despite the fact that there are so many issues which deal with public interest, which deal with basic rights and entitlements of people where they're asking for information, they're hanging while commissions are just not functioning. The Jharkhand Commission, commission, like I said, doesn't have a single commissioner. I was really shocked to know the West Bengal Commission now has three commissioners, but because they don't have the appointment of a chief, they are unable to work. So we have a situation today where across the country, more than three lakh uh, appeals and complaints are pending. Now, that's a huge number. And uh, that partly comes from the lack of appointment of information commissioners in a timely manner. The second issue, which sort of very rightly pointed out, is who is made an information commissioner. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we have seen that there is a huge tendency amongst governments to appoint ex-bureaucrats um, as information commissioners. And this is something that the Supreme Court has also uh, brought up and said that the law provides for people from diverse backgrounds to be made information commissioners. Why is it that only ex-bureaucrats are selected in most of the cases? And uh, uh, the court has come out very clearly saying that the appointment process must be transparent so that there is public trust and people know that the best person for the job is being selected and not merely somebody who holds favor with the current dispensation. Now, we are seeing, unfortunately, that despite the Supreme Court's directions, there isn't adequate transparency in the appointment of information commissioners. What kind of issues is this creating? One like sort of mentioned, you know, uh, instead of giving orders which are pro-people, because that is what commissions are supposed to do. They are supposed to be champions of the right to information. Uh, we are seeing regressive orders being given in many cases. The second thing is that, uh, you know, uh, they are not working uh, in and uh, disposing of cases at the rate at which it needs to be done. So there, you know, the number of the disposal of cases very often is too small and it does not justify, uh, you know, uh, the appointment of a commissioner in that state, in that case. So there are states in which our research has shown that, uh, you know, every day only about two cases are heard by a commissioner, whereas there is pendency of thousands of uh, cases. In a state like West Bengal right now, uh, you know, uh, uh, estimates are suggesting that if an application is filed today 
an appeal or a complaint is filed today, then it will take nearly 10 years for it to be heard and disposed of. Now, this is absolutely alarming. And finally, uh, you know, what we have been talking about, the quality of information provision depends on how effective the commissioners are. So if there is a violation of the RTI Act, there is a system of incentives and disincentives that's built into the law. Commissioners are empowered to impose penalties on uh, errant public information officers. So if they delay information or they provide incorrect information, they can be penalized. Unfortunately, that provision is not being used enough by the commissioners and that is leading to a lot of impunity. So the public information officers don't worry before denying information to people because they know that there will be no repercussions. So we keep saying to commissioners that they must impose penalties in deserving cases because if they don't impose penalties, then it really shows to the PIO, the public information officer, that they don't need to worry. They can just deny information and sit back. And when the hearing happens after several years, you know, they they will just either then provide the information or the information will be so dated that nobody will be interested in it anymore. So these are the kind of problems that are coming because timely appointments are not being made, transparency is not there in the appointment process, and very often we are seeing that not the right kind of appointments are being made to the commissions. Just just to add uh, to the impunity point that Anjali ji said, I recently wrote an editorial for The Hindu also where I mentioned that the current uh, method of working at the Central Information Commission is that in matters of larger public interest, the commissioners are not really willing to go against the government in order for disclosure of information that should have been proactively disclosed by the public authority. So instead, what they are doing is they are passing back the matter to the ministry before it and asking the uh, first appellate authority, who is a senior officer to the public information officer, to decide the case and pass a reasoned order. Even though um, I do not think that is not the right method, but the wrong here is that after a fresh order is being passed at the departmental level, which is usually again a reiteration of the denial of information, the commission is unwilling to hear the case again. And that is where the mandate of the commission, which is to decide cases and order disclosure or non-disclosure, is being defeated by the commissioners themselves. And therefore, again, reiterating my point of people of integrity, um, that is simply missing at various commissions. So sometimes other laws can impact the RTI Act as well. So the most recent case being the updated data protection bill. Anjali, can you explain the intersection between these two laws a bit? What kind of issues is this creating? data protection bill, which has been brought in recently by the government. We are very concerned because that bill sets a system of amending the right to information law in a manner that all personal information will be exempted uh, under the, you know, under that data protection act, which basically means that if we are asking for information to be put out in the public domain, which deals with granular personal information, let's say a woman 
is not getting her rations. One way is that in a community where people are not being given their uh, entitlements or rights under the uh, public distribution system, there is granular information that is put up saying, this is the name of the person, this is the amount of info, uh, uh, you know, rations that they are being given, this is their address. So as to enable a social audit in order to put pressure on the government and hold them accountable. Now, under the data privacy law, the kind of amendments that are being brought to the RTI law, including a very important proviso which is being gotten rid of which said that any information that cannot be denied to the parliament or a state legislature cannot be denied to citizen that proviso is also being gotten rid of we fear now that the entire proactive disclosure scheme uh, which was provided for under the RTI Act is going to be completely broken. And uh, we are very concerned about it and we are completely opposing these amendments that are proposed through the right, to the Right to Information Act through the Data Protection Bill. So before we end, I just want to address, you know, we've seen that several RTI activists have been killed over the years for, you know, asking questions and for doing the very thing that the RTI Act is empowering people to do and allowing people to do freely. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that this has a bit of a chilling effect. And I wonder if it's impacted either of your work. And, you know, how do we go about providing more safety for RTI activists or just anyone who decides, you know, doesn't have to necessarily be an activist, but anyone who decides to question the government in this way and exercise this right that this law is giving us is there anything that we can do to protect the people and then ultimately protect this law i would say that you know um there are about 90 people, more than 90 people who have been killed for asking for information using the right to information law and filing complaints on the basis of that information. But that to me is the tip of the iceberg. There are thousands of people who've been attacked who don't make the news headlines because they somehow survive. There are many more who are constantly threatened for simply asking for information using the law. So there is a real problem. And of course, it is meant to create a chilling impact. And it does. But I have to say that because the law is something that empowers citizens um, at such a tremendous level, the enthusiasm to ask for information has not declined. We still see people going out and asking for information irrespective. But uh, I think that it is the moral obligation of the government to make sure that there is protection for whistleblowers and for those who are seeking information. It's a statutory right. There are at least two things that must be done. First, uh, which is what has already been referred to by Saurav, is that under Section 4 of the Right to Information Act, there are proactive disclosures that have to be made by every public authority. It's an obligation. And unfortunately, we've seen that Section 4 is one of the worst implemented 
parts of the right to information law. So uh, very often information that should be provided uh, by public authorities is not provided and people have to put themselves at risk, make themselves vulnerable, file RTI applications to access that information. So even if we look at the, the people who've been killed, for example, Nandi Singh in uh, Assam, he was hacked to death. Uh, now, the reason was that he had asked for information about the working of the public distribution system and other government schemes in the state of Assam. Now, that is information that should have been provided in the public domain under Section 4 by the government. It was not being done. He had no choice then but to file an RTI application. And then his name came, uh, you know, for, forth and he became vulnerable and was finally attacked when he used that information to file complaints. The second thing, so therefore, the first thing is that governments have to make sure that proactive disclosures are done. They are done at a granular level. And that has to be information that's widely available. Uh, the second thing is that there is a whistleblower's protection law, which was passed by the parliament in 2014. Unfortunately, till date, that law has not been implemented because the people who've been killed that you talked about are those people who are not just asking for information. Very often, there are people who are actually using that information to blow the whistle on corruption that they are finding or human rights violation that they are unearthing. So we need a whistleblower's protection law, which will provide some form of protection to those who use the information that they have obtained to um, file complaints of uh, wrongdoing and corruption. Um, I, I agree with the Whistleblower's Protection Act. Um, and it is rather serious uh, that uh, since almost it's been almost uh, eight years now, I believe, uh, since that law has been pending and not being implemented. But the only thing I fear is like many other laws, uh, perhaps this government would also create problems in its implementation, but at least there would be a framework and uh, whatever minimal protection that would offer to um, people who are vulnerable, especially I see, you know, these cases with... Um, RTI activists being uh, murdered are at very, very grassroots level. So people who are working on actual corruption cases uh, relating to panchayats or road construction or uh, PWD matters or ration, um, etc. So they are the ones who are uh, needing this law uh, currently the most. I think we, sh we should also be um, creating pressure groups in every state where we can keep an eye on such people who are vulnerable um, and who may have received threats uh, and, you know, do something, engage with the, their governments or perhaps move courts to really protect these people who are seeking for information. And that is something that we really need to do urgently. And um, such cases, I, I, I remember there was a case from Bihar uh, where where a person of my age had sought for information about medical seats, etc., and he was murdered. So that personally had a very chilling effect on me because he did the same sort of work that I do. He was a journalist also, and he was of the same age as me. So that does have a very chilling effect on people. And 
um, in informal conversations as well, when you refer to your work amongst your friends or others, the general advice that they give you is to stay safe. And I think that culture has to change where we can seek for information without fearing for our lives or livelihoods. That's it for this week's episode, but I'll be back soon to unpack the next big data story. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major streaming platforms. Just search for DataPoint by The Hindu. You can find all of our DataPoint stories at thehindu.com slash data. Thanks for listening.